Uh, I preached a few weeks ago and had a standalone sermon in Esther, and this is another standalone sermon. Um, And what I was originally planning on doing was sort of a second installment on the book of Esther, Uh, but the Lord decided to lead me otherwise at the beginning of this week. As I read through my notes and prayed through all the details that you would normally pray through on Monday, uh, I realized that it would be highly appropriate especially with all our kids in here and families together and with the week that's coming up, that it would be highly appropriate um, to preach on what it means to give thanks as a people. Then I tried to talk myself out of it because that's what everyone would be expecting on the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And we got to be edgier than that, right? We got to come at you when you don't expect it. But then I realized I was completely ridiculous and I thought to myself, can we really overdo such a thing? Uh, Is it possible to urge God's people too often uh, to give thanks to the Lord? Uh, And the obvious answer is no, it's not possible to overdo such a thing. So that said, uh, the Lord led me to Psalm 50, which is where we're going to be this morning. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 50 with me, if you haven't turned there already. Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above, to the earth, he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. There's a lot going on in this psalm. And we actually don't have a lot of background or context outside of what the psalm itself offers. We know that it's a psalm of Asaph from the beginning, which means it was either written by Asaph or it was written by someone else for Asaph to use. But what the psalm does reveal is a God who is breaking his silence and coming to judge his people. That's what we're looking at this morning in this psalm. A God who is breaking his silence and he's coming 
to judge his people. We sang a song before we began about God's judgment and then we give thanks to him as he judges. You may be thinking, Scott, you, were, you said you were gonna talk about Thanksgiving and now five minutes into the sermon, here you are talking about judgment again. What happened? What happened is this. We're called to give thanks to a God who judges perfectly. If we have to remove judgment from the picture to be able to give thanks, we misunderstand what God calls us to in Thanksgiving. The problem that I think many of us have is that we hear the word judgment and we immediately go to punishment. We hear the word judgment and we immediately go to punishment. And I want you to know that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're not talking about punishment this morning. We're talking about something that comes before punishment. What we're seeing is our judge, God, exercising his righteous rule as he sees fit. He judges you. He rules over you. He's not a God who's just going to one day come back and thump you for doing something wrong. What he does is he judges you every day. He rules you every day. And that's what this psalm is picturing, this God who's coming to his people and saying, people, you got something that's out of order, and we're going to put that back in order, and I'm going to exercise judgment over you to show you that so that you're not punished for that eternally. That's what we're looking at here. God is summoning the earth. He's showing up in a manner consistent with Mount Sinai in this psalm. The trembling, the shaking, the fire, the tempest. And God is summoning the earth and gathering those who claim to be a part of his church. Those who, it says in in one of the previous verses, who made a covenant with him by sacrifice. So he's not just judging random people. What we have to know in Psalm 50 is God is judging his people. So we're talking about a God who's judging His people. And look at verse 7. Hear, O God, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. Verse 7 gets to the heart of the judgment at that time. I want you to spend a few seconds just taking in the magnitude of this moment. With devouring fire and mighty tempest, God gathers his people to exercise his rule and his judge over them. And his first words are, I'm God, I'm your God, and I will testify against you. Consider what it would be like if you were on the receiving end of those words from God. I'm God, I'm your God, and as I'm exercising judgment, I'm here to testify against you. Imagine being in court and looking up and someone who you thought was there to testify on your behalf begins to speak not on your behalf. Imagine how they must, the hearers of this must have trembled they must have thought, oh, what's going on here? Immediately, we know that those who are proclaiming to be God's people have done something wrong. That's what we're engaging in Psalm 50. Those who are proclaiming to be God's people have done something wrong. So the obvious question is, what? What are God's people doing wrong? And verse 8 tells us that it's not their sacrifices. It says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So what are they doing wrong? Well, it's not their sacrifices because they sacrifice all the time. And it says it's not their burnt offerings because their burnt offerings are continually before God. But verse 9 reveals that God refuses to accept those offerings. It says, I'll not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Before we go any further... Let's sit with that point for a minute. Just because you're doing what God says to do does not mean he's glorified in it. Do you hear that? Kiddos, think about that. Just because you're doing what God says to do 
doesn't necessarily mean that he's glorified in it. Keeping the rules isn't enough. That's what this psalm is getting to. Paying your tithe isn't enough. Consistent worship attendance isn't enough. Active participation in small group isn't enough. Scheduled devotional reading isn't enough. The covenant people in the psalm were doing all that God asked them to do, but somehow it was not acceptable to God. Why? How is it possible that the people sitting in this room right now could be doing what God asked us to do, yet it not be acceptable to him? How could that happen? Verse 10 reveals a little bit more. God says, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. Now remember, God doesn't just waste words. It may be interesting to think, why did he go there? He's telling them they're doing these things and he's not accepting them, but then God says, every beast of the field is mine. It's, it's, it's not just some random interjection where you're supposed to go, oh, okay, way to go, God. I don't get it. He's saying this for a point. There's specificity here. He doesn't waste his words and he's telling them this for a reason. And the reason is that they need to be reminded of that. They need to be reminded of the reality that those things they're offering up belong to God, not to them. They've forgotten something. This reminder that he gives them is helpful to the worshiper for at least two reasons. First is in consideration of our needs. When you read, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. For the worshiper in need, if you find yourself lacking something, if you find yourself in need of help, if you find yourself in need of provision, it's encouraging to remember that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's really encouraging. But for the worshiper, it's also a helpful reminder in consideration of God's needs. He has none. He has none. That tells us something about our consideration of God's needs as worshipers. He has none. That's what they needed to be reminded of. Not only does he own the cattle on a thousand hills, but verse 11 says, I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. And then in verses 12 and 13, God abandons all subtlety and says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I think that's a funny phrase. Think about God, mighty on his throne, well aware of all that he owns, looking at his people and saying, in, in infinite wisdom, consider God's mind. And he's looking at these people who are bringing these sacrifices, but obviously they're doing it for the wrong reason. And he decides that the best thing to say in his infinite wisdom is, you know what? If I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. That's funny. You're gonna laugh about that later? That's gonna set in, like just picturing God enthroned on high. If I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. He goes on to say, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You think you're bringing me a meal? When you do those things, you, you, I'm sorry, do you think you're doing me a favor? Is that what this is? God's correcting his people. Some of them have fallen into the misconception that they bring their sacrifices because God needs them. I mean, listen to the language God's using. He wants to make sure his people don't think that they bring him something that he doesn't have but he needs, and oh, if only they would bring it. It's sort of that ridiculous picture of the United Nations building where Jesus is knocking on the window. He's like 12 stories tall. 
knocking. If only they would let me in. He could break the glass. I just want you to know that. He could break the glass. He could tear the building open. He could get in. He doesn't need you to, to open that. It's, it's this ridiculous picture that we paint of God as though he's just sitting there waiting on us to provide his needs. One commentator sums up the situation by saying, what God intended for their instruction, they made their confidence. His people are putting their confidence in the wrong things, and it is certainly affecting their view of thanks. His people are putting their confidence in the wrong things. The thing that he meant for their instruction, that's what they put their confidence in. Rather than putting their confidence in God, they put their confidence in their sacrifices to God. Do you see the difference? Rather than putting their confidence in God, they put their confidence in their sacrifices to God. In Psalm 50, for God's people, it had become all about the externals, all about what they did, all about what they gave, all about strict specificity to the law, but with no heart. There's no inward movement. It's all outward. It would be like showing up for corporate worship on time, Bible in hand, sing every song, give abundantly, shake hands, and you never had any movement in your heart the whole time. You're just going through the motions. That's where his people were in Psalm 50. God's looking at what they're doing, and in a sense, he's saying, why are you still bringing me sacrifices? Your heart is so far from me. There's no inward movement of your spirit toward me. You must then think I need these things? You think you're providing what I lack? I'm God. I lack nothing. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. You have to know that a perfectly holy and just God could at this point just be done with such an obstinate people. Think about how ridiculous it is to just go through the motions. A God who desires for you to be fully engaged with your heart. A God who doesn't want part of your affections, but all of your affection. He doesn't want you to give affection and things away and your heart away to a thousand different things. And if anything's left over, you go and give it to him. At this point, a God who's perfectly righteous, perfectly just, he could just say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done. He could just go silent. He could wipe him off the face of the earth. He's all powerful. He could do whatever he wants here. But I want us to really enjoy the grace that is found in verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. We know where his people are. Their hearts are far from him. They're bringing sacrifices, thinking that God needs something from them and that they're gonna give him what he's lacking. And he says this in verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Not for the Most High, to the Most High. There is a difference that we will talk about. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. What grace in verses 14 and 15. First, God doesn't just leave them with what not to do. It's not helpful when people do that. Have you ever had someone do that? All they tell you is what not to do, but they don't give you any help or any encouragement in what you should be doing. What would be, if this is negative, what would be positive? If this is not acceptable, what would be acceptable? God goes further and he doesn't just tell them what's not acceptable, he tells them what's acceptable. He offers to them what would be worthwhile. Hey guys, if you wanna stop wasting your time, here's what you can do. So God says, I don't need anything from you. I don't lack anything. 
But covenant people, what you should offer is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. What this means is, think about all the sacrifices they were bringing in the wrong way. This means that if they were to take all of the sacrifices possible, I'm talking a mountain of bulls and goats, it would not trump a heart that's truly thankful. He says, all that that you're bringing, you know what you need to do? Offer me a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Quit allowing your hearts to be far from me as you go through the motions of what you think I want you to do. Thankfulness is not what God needs from us. It's what he deserves from us. What's so interesting about, if you look up in Leviticus, this, this sacrifice that he's talking about, a sacrifice of thanksgiving and the vows that he's referring to in Leviticus 7, it tells us that this type of sacrifice was one enjoyed over a meal. These were both a kind of peace offering, which was the only kind of sacrifice in which the worshiper ate some of the sacrificial animal. Its primary function was to eat a meal in the company of the sacrificer's family and the needy with God as the host. That's what it says in your ESV study Bibles. The purpose of the sacrifice being alluded to in Psalm 50 is to eat a meal in company with your family and with the needy with God as the host. Well, this is quite timely, isn't it? How timely. God says to his people, rather than thinking I need something from you, rather than all of these outward things that you have divorced from your heart, here's what you can do. Sit down at a meal, gather around the dinner table with your family and anyone in need. Enjoy that meal knowing that I, God, am your host. Know also as you're enjoying that meal that that food you're eating came from one of my thousand hills. All those fields, remember, that I have where I know everything, you know, the birds and stuff, you're eating something that came from one of my thousand hills. I'm your host. And here's, the sac- here's what you do, worshiper. Here's what you bring to that meal. Be thankful. Be thankful. I kind of want to just end the sermon right there. We have such a tendency to want to attach all these strings to thankfulness. And he's saying, you come to this meal. I'm your host. I'm the one providing what you need. And here's what you provide. Be thankful. Consider all that you have to be thankful for and ascribe all provision and glory and honor to me, not yourself. He says, enjoy. I don't know if I'm very good at just enjoying. Like there's always some string attached that like I feel like I gotta do something or I feel like um, something else has gotta, I, it's, it's hard for me to just sit and enjoy. I think it's hard for a lot of us if we're gonna be honest. Just enjoy, just be thankful. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Because what God does in verse 15 is he goes even further. Not only does he say, you sit down at this meal, I will provide for you what you need in that meal. I will be your host. You gather with your family and enjoy. But not only that, verse 15 says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He's saying this to people who were making a mockery of worship. They were going through the motions and their hearts were totally disengaged. And he's so full of grace that he says, call upon me in your day of trouble. I'll deliver you 
and you shall glorify me. Another reminder that God doesn't call upon us in his times of need. He has no day of trouble, but we do. And he graciously says, I'm here. Call upon me, and I'll deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Notice that God is glorified in delivering us. I want you to know that's how we glorify God, by getting delivered. Isn't that scandalous? How'd you glorify God today? He saved me from my sin. What'd you do? He saved me from my sin. The giver gets the glory always. So God has addressed the outwardly religious in this first half of the chapter. He's addressed the outwardly religious, but in the following verses, God makes a shift and God addresses the wicked hypocrites and the evil. It says in verse 16, but to the wicked God says. But what we must take note of is the reality that He doesn't have to look outside of the church to find these people. God doesn't say, okay, I've talked to my church people. Now let's go find the wicked people and the hypocrites. No, no. He's still talking to those who made a covenant with him by sacrifice. He's still speaking to those who made the covenant with him. He's still speaking to those who are called his people, and some of them are wicked and evil. A commentator by the name of Kidner says, these men are not the heathen, but the nominally orthodox. Those who combine wickedness and worship. Just for a moment, ask yourself, is there any way in which I'm combining wickedness and worship? He goes on to say, if those mechanically pious folks of verses 7 through 15 needed to be reminded that God is spiritual, and that's what it means that we worship him in spirit and in truth, your heart can't be disengaged These hardened characters of verses 16 through 21 just need to be reminded that God is moral. These are still people in the church. God's saying, be reminded that I'm spiritual, that you worship me in spirit and in truth. Don't let your hearts be disengaged from your actions. And God is now saying, and don't forget, I'm a moral God. In verse 17, it says, go ahead and turn the page. For you hate discipline. You cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. In 16, he says, what right have you to recite my statutes? What right do you have to take my covenant on your lips? It's good to consider, how would you answer that question? If God looks at you and says, what right do you have to recite my covenant, to take my covenant on your lips? What's your answer? We see hypocrites in these verses, who find secondhand enjoyment from thieves and adulterers, though they themselves don't actually take part in it, they're finding this secondhand enjoyment in thieves and adulterers, but, but their noses are still clean. They're not taking part in it. They're finding vicarious enjoyment through the wickedness of others. I mean, is that what we use TV for? You gotta be careful, Right? Finding vicarious enjoyment through the wickedness of others? I'm not saying TV is evil, but if you're using it to find vicarious enjoyment through the wickedness of others, I would urge you to stop that, to repent. Verse 19 indicates that they give free reign to their mouth. They they don't have any self-control. What are they doing with their mouths? They're slandering people, and they're, they're framing deceit. Verse 21 says, God says in verse 21, 
These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. This begs the question, what do you do with God's silence? The scripture talks of those who say, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? He's not coming back. He's not saying anything anymore. Scripture talks about those who who say, the days have gone on as they always have, and they'll go on as they always will, and there's sort of this godlessness about that perspective, and I just wonder, what are we doing with God's silence? My question for us this morning is, are we presuming upon the riches of God's forbearance? Are we presuming upon the riches of his kindness? Because Romans says that such things are meant to bring you to repentance. The reason that God hasn't come back to, to judge and to, and to punish yet is to bring you to repentance, to bring you to repentance. Don't presume upon the riches of his kindness and his forbearance. Repent from your sin. Don't continue sinning saying, I still got time. You don't know that. Don't continue sinning saying, ah, we'll, we'll deal with that later. The Bible says of sin that you are to, to put it to death. That's the kind of like violence, immediate violence you, you take toward your sin to put it to death. You don't continue to dabble trying to slowly be rid of it. No, 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 it's a repenting and turning, a confessing and a moving in holiness. As long as you still have a borrowed breath, there's opportunity to repent. Until Christ returns, all men have the opportunity to turn from wickedness and to embrace holiness. And you must know, as we see God judging his people, What I hope we see in Psalm 50 is that truth is not only meant to convict, but it's meant to heal. He's not just offering up that that which will convict us. He's also offering up that which will heal us. He's giving his children a huge opportunity to be healed of their sins. If you are persisting in some sort of immorality, either directly or vicariously, I urge you this morning to accept the healing that God offers in Christ and repent from your sin as God lays the charge before us. And finally, verses 22 through 23 say, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Just stop there. The king of kings just said, Mark this lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Christians shouldn't take those kind of words lightly. We shouldn't just sort of maybe listen. If if God says, mark this, lest I tear you apart and you don't have one to deliver you, listen to what I'm saying. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Those are the words he tells us to mark. Lest we be torn apart by him. Lest we have no one to deliver us. He says, offer thanksgiving as a sacrifice that glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Thanksgiving is not a light thing in God's perspective. Many have paraphrased this verse saying, a thankful heart prepares the way for the Lord. You may have heard it said like that. We actually have a song that says, a thankful heart prepares the way for you, O Lord. 
Meaning that if your life is ordered rightly and you are offering thanksgiving to God, this prepares you to receive salvation, and this is true. If your life is ordered rightly and you're regularly giving thanks to God, that is a wonderful way to prepare for eternity. But we have to be very, very careful. I wanna confess that in my preparation for this sermon, I came very close to dropping the ball. I came very close to concluding with something that wasn't exactly true. Because it seemed, it seemed logical. And in trying to just move with my own logic, I fell under heavy conviction, and this is what I'm talking about. What I mean is that one could read these verses, seeing all that God has done, all that God's done through, through this long engagement of his people who are doing all the actions with no heart, kind of making a mockery of what he's put forth. You could read all this and say, true thankfulness is ordering your life rightly. Or you could say, true thankfulness is obedience. Just consider for a moment, how's that sound to you? Is it right, is it wrong, is it a little off? Is, what is that? True thankfulness is obedience. That's not our concluding point this morning. Our concluding point this morning is not that true thankfulness is obedience. There's more to it than that. Because that thinking is what's referred to as what's called the debtor's ethic. You can write that down in your notes. You can look it up, maybe do some studying. I'll send some follow-up email on some of this. But that's what's called the debtor's ethic. Certainly, we feel indebted to God if we're really reckoning with how good he is. If we understand grace at all, we know that we just receive more and more of it. So in a sense, yes, you're just only growing in your indebtedness to grace, in a sense. There's no day where you, where you pay him back a little bit. There's no action that's, that's holy and good where he's like, oh, okay, we're even. Never happens. Certainly we feel indebted to God if we're really reckoning with how good he is, but there's a sad and a dangerous and a subtle shift Pay careful attention here. There's a sad, dangerous, and subtle shift when we turn that goodness that he has given us into a debt that we're trying to repay. You see, it's subtle, but it's so dangerous. When we turn the goodness that he has extended to us, we turn that into a debt that we're gonna now try to repay him through more prayer, giving more money, doing more good deeds, being more faithful, David Mathis explains, he says, a danger lurks. The Bible doesn't have much, if anything, to say about obeying out of gratitude. I want y'all to know, as a worshiper, that kind of rattled me this week. It didn't kind of rattle me this week. It really rattled me this week. I was thinking, wait, whoa, 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 huh? What? I mean, these are the guys who are smart, and they have these big degrees and all these you know, accolades, and they're, they're, I look up to these guys, and these are the ones that I read. And when he says, obeying out of gratitude, that's not really a, a theme anywhere in the Bible. I'm like, are you sure? And I go, and I start looking, and it, it kind of rattled me a little bit. And, and this is why. He goes on to say, giving thanks to God for what he has given to us is precious. It's essential. Give thanks to God. And so is trusting him for his ongoing provision in the future. Thanksgiving is beautiful, but it can go bad on us if we try to give it faith's job. 
What's the job of faith? It's, it's to move forward, to, to, to trust, to exercise great trust, to do all you can for the glory of God. But don't let thanksgiving do faith's job. Thanksgiving is being thankful. Don't attach any strings to it. In his book titled Future Grace, John Piper states, there's an impulse in the fallen human to forget that gratitude is a spontaneous response of joy to receiving something. When we forget this, what happens is that gratitude starts to be misused and gratitude starts to be distorted as an impulse to pay for the very thing that came to us for free. This terrible moment is the birthplace of the debtor's ethic. The debtor's ethic says, because you've done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you now. To outdo one another in showing honor is a good thing. But its root is not thankfulness. Its root is faith. Be thankful. Outdo one another in showing honor. But don't let thankfulness take the place of faith. This impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. Because you've done something good for me, I'll do something good for you. That's not how the Christian moves. God, because you did something good for me, now I'll do something good for you. Fair to fair. How much do I owe you? God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift and in the goodwill of another. In that sense, thankfulness is something you break forth with. The word here, give a sacrifice of thanksgiving, the word that can be substituted for that is praise. I can't help it. I just have to say how good God is for what he's done. It's this bursting forth of joy for what he's done and who he is. We're on the receiving end of a lot of greatness. He did not mean it to be an impulse to return favors. God's goodness towards you was never meant by God to be an impulse for you to return favors to him. And if gratitude is twisted into a sense of debt, it gives birth to the debtor's ethic and the effect is that it nullifies grace. It may be subtle, but it's very, very important. I want us to make sure our minds are right and our hearts are right and our perspectives are biblical as we approach this week where we're celebrating Thanksgiving. You're not paying God back. You're not returning a favor. Turn to Psalm 116. Psalm 116, verse 12. My wife and I had an occasion, I guess it was maybe a couple years ago, where some very good friends of ours, they, they told us they were taking us ice skating, and secretly I was dreading the evening. Ice skating. Do I look like an ice skater? And so I was like, oh yeah, I was being positive, you know, oh yeah, that'll be fun, that'll be great, let's go ice skating, <laughs> you know. And as we got close to the place where we were supposed to ice skate, um, our friends took a turn and they took us to an amazing restaurant. They were totally messing with us and their goal for the evening was to bless us. That was all they wanted to do. And they pulled into this restaurant that um, I, I don't normally go there. Very nice restaurant. And we sat down at this meal and they brought the most amazing, like even the drinks they start you off with, like water and tea, the cups are amazing. 
Like you feel better about drinking water out of that particular glass. Like it's better water or something. And then they bring these appetizers. And like when we're done with the appetizers, I'm like, man, I, I, I kind of feel full. <laughs> Those were amazing. And then they bring the main course, steak. I love steak. It was such a blessing. If they wanted to bless me, steak was the way to do it. <laughs> so good. We feasted. I mean, this meal was lavish. Not only that, then it was dessert. We're talking cheesecake. If you want to bless me, that, that's good steak and cheesecake. Oh, my goodness. This was a lavish meal. I'm talking over the top. Like, I'm, 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 taking, I'm feeling like this is scandalous. I can't even believe this. This is amazing. Imagine if at the end of that meal, in which this family just wanted to bless us, at the end of wonderful fellowship, at the end of just really enjoying food and enjoying each other. They were there, by the way. It wasn't just the food. Like, we really had some good fellowship. <laughs> but it was all enjoyment. It was just lavish. It was just blessing. Imagine if at the end of the meal, I was like, oh, man. Well, you got like a couple bucks. I mean, I know I can't pay you back fully, but maybe in part. Could anything cheapen that blessing more? They went out of their way to bless us and to provide and to give us something that, by the way, I've only got a dollar in my wallet. I thought I had a 10. It's actually very appropriate for the example. How much would that cheapen it? Taking out my lame wallet, trying to pay something back. What would be better is what reality was. The reality was that the restaurant was so nice, if I wanted to pay it back, I actually couldn't have afforded to. That's reality. If I cleared the bank account, we might get close. This place is amazing. That was some, some very treasured steak that we just consumed. So it would cheapen it for me to try to pay back some token when someone had gone out of their way to bless. So what do you do? What's the best way to, to just be thankful? Don't let any strings be touched. What's the best way to be thankful? Turn to one, Psalm 116, and it says in verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I'll lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I'll pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What can I do? What can I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? You go back for more. Eat some more steak. Drink some of that amazing water out of that amazing glass. Get a refill. Go back for seconds. You hold up the cup of salvation, which he fills, and you say, Lord, you have, you, have, you have done so much good to me. You have given me so much. You've blessed me with yourself. You've blessed me with, with physical things. You've blessed me spiritually. What am I gonna do? The only thing I can do, lift up the cup of salvation for more. That's how you are thankful. You lift up the cup of salvation you, you pay your vows. You say, thank you. I'm thankful. 
Not, I, you, may, you must need something now that you did something for me. Or I'm going to pay you back. Or I'm going to try to return some token amount. I'm going to do sort of an interest-only thing because I know I can never repay it. No, you're moving as a debtor there. You are a freed child of God. Enjoy your Lord. That's Psalm 50. You're free. Enjoy your Lord. Lift up the cup of salvation. Go back for seconds if you want to show that you're thankful. Turn to Romans 11. And this is why. Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or what has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You can't give a gift to God to repay him. Not even your life. It's not what you do when you surrender your life to the Lord. You're not saying, you know what? Jesus died on the cross, gave me his life, I'll give you my life. That is not, it's not a trade. Who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? And this is why we just go back and hold up the cup of salvation for more. This is why we don't try to spend tomorrow repaying the grace that we got today. This is why, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things. Not most. All. If you have it, it came from him. If you give to him, it came from him. You see that? You're not paying him back for anything. That's not what thanksgiving is. It's not saying, you've done this, so I will do this. It's saying, even what I give to you, even what I bring to you is because you gave it to me. And tomorrow, I'm not gonna try to pay you back for today's grace because tomorrow, I'm just gonna hold up the cup of salvation because I need more grace. Indebtedness will grow your whole life. There's never a day where you'll kind of get back in the green, then you go to the red, then you get back. That's not how it works. Your whole life, you will be moving towards more and more grace. You're always on the receiving end. You never pay him back for any of it, and he has no need from you to do so. Rather, he wants you to sit and to be thankful. Go back for seconds. Hold up the cup of salvation. Praise him. Don't take your wallet out. Look like a fool. He knows what's in your wallet. It's not enough. Stop it. Enjoy him. Be thankful. Turn to Galatians 5. This will be our last verse we look at. When we try to turn his gift, that which was free, into something that's not actually free because we're trying to pay him back, we're voluntarily making ourselves debtors when he didn't intend that. Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. To take the free gift of God and turn it into a debt that you're going to try to repay is to voluntarily take that and turn it into a yoke of slavery and submit to being a debtor when he says, I made you free in Christ. Be thankful. 
Let your heart be filled with such wonder and such enjoyment of me that you cannot help but just give praise. Don't sit around the Thanksgiving table and say, well, God did this, so I'm gonna do this, and God did this, and I'm gonna do this, and he, you know, he probably needs us to tell the gospel story more. No, you, you overflow with the goodness that's come from him because it's all to him, it's all from him. Every good thing is from him. He wants you to be free. He doesn't want you to operate as a debtor. Christ wants you to operate and to worship in freedom, not as one indebted and trying to pay him back. And my hope this morning as we prepare for the week to come and the weird transition that happens on Friday is to present a picture of Thanksgiving with no strings attached. To think that you can pay God back through obedience or to think that God needs something from you is to submit again to a yoke of slavery. As we take the supper this morning, I want you to picture in your mind that particular sacrifice that he outlines in Psalm 50 where it's families at a table. As we take the supper, and as you prepare this week as families to gather around the dinner table for Thanksgiving, what I want you to hear is God's call on your life to offer a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. Gather as loved ones with God as the host, knowing that you're enjoying food from one of his thousand hills, Enjoy his provision, enjoy him, and just give thanks.